Please bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord to ask his blessing on the public preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we are powerless to understand or speak or hear your word without the Spirit who breathed out that word, illumining the pages of it to our minds. So, Lord, would you shine into our hearts with the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? May we receive that knowledge. And give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Give us an appetite for your word. And fill us this morning, we pray. Watch over your word to perform it as you have promised to do. Speak to us now. For Jesus' sake, amen. I saw a t-shirt in a store recently that said... Give me a minute and let me overthink this. It's a good use of self-deprecating humor. Probably describes many of us. We overthink things. Whether it's overthinking life in general, or overthinking a specific situation or relationship, we give ourselves over to what has been called the paralysis of analysis. We think we're figuring things out, We're staying a step ahead, but instead of talking to ourselves from reality and from God's Word, we are listening to our own thoughts without talking back. Pretty soon we get all turned around. We believe things that are not true, and our feelings start to lie to us based on those misperceptions. So we think we understand things rightly when in fact we're totally wrong and we have no idea. In those moments, we often can see each other struggling through that paralysis of analysis. And very often we will give each other a very common piece of shared wisdom. We tell each other, get out of your head. Get out of your head. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says as much to us in Ecclesiastes 8 this morning. If you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, Ecclesiastes 8. His point, in fact, is that no matter how much we're in our heads, we're never going to understand how God governs his world. God governs his fallen world in a way that intentionally confronts us with the limits of our own reason. God governs his fallen world in a way that intentionally confronts us with the limits of our reason. And to illuminate that point, he shows us four features of the wise person in a fallen world. If this is how God governs his world to intentionally confront me with the limits of my own wisdom, then how do I live wisely as a result of that and under that? And those four features of the wise person will guide our time together in God's Word this morning. So follow along with me as I read for us 
Ecclesiastes 8 in its entirety. Ecclesiastes 8. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. I say keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go out from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way, for there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power of the day, over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this... I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on the earth. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said, this also is vanity. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun than to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do, anyone's eyes, do one's eyes sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Four features of the wise person in a fallen world that God governs in a way that intentionally confronts us with the limits of our own reason. Four features of the wise. First, the conduct of the wise in verses 1 to 9. The proverb in verse 1 is cryptic, no doubt, but it summarizes the whole first paragraph, and so we have to use the paragraph to interpret the proverb. The paragraph is about obeying state authority. Keep the king's command because he represents God's authority. So if you feel like saying to the king, what do you think you're doing in creating or enforcing this law or abusing your power? That's normally a bad idea. Don't take a stand against him for rebellion or revolution. Don't storm out on a bad king in an angry huff. You want a peaceful life, the preacher says? You want to experience no bad thing? First order of business is to be a law-abiding citizen. 
even if you disagree with the law. There's a time and a way to right every wrong, even wrongs done by the state against you that lie heavy on you. And even though no one can predict the future, if you're wise, you'll recognize when the time is ripe and when it is not. Ultimate outcomes are unknown, but ultimate destiny and death are also inescapable, he says. Unintended consequences will remain unknown, and unforeseen circumstances are going to remain just that, unforeseen, until they materialize, and by then it's going to be too late. Because you're only human, and because God governs his fallen world in a way that confronts us with the limits of our own reason. So before you rebel against a king, before you talk him down publicly, remember, you are not in control of your destiny. Kohelet corrects the error of Invictus. You know that poem, William Ernest Henley? Contrary to his now seemingly popular pseudo-wisdom, you are not the master of your own fate, and you are not the captain of your unconquerable soul. You don't choose the day you die any more than you choose the day that you were born. And the wickedness of rebellion won't necessarily save you from the wickedness of bad rulers. You can't know how rebellion against a bad ruler will turn out. When he says there's no discharge from war, he either means that death is final, especially death in rebellion against the state, or he means that you can't get a substitute to die for you in this life. You can't get discharged from the duty of death by assigning someone else to go to that battle for you. You've got to die your own death. Now, having hopefully understood the paragraph a little bit better, we can maybe better understand the proverb in verse 1. It's about how we respond to civil authority, especially when we don't like it and when a civil authority doesn't like us and is doing things against us. Who is like the wise? Or maybe better, who is wise? Who resembles a wise person? Who looks like a wise person? Who has the distinguishing features of wisdom? Who knows the interpretation or resolution of a problem? Who can cut the Gordian knots of life? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Wise people are not a dime a dozen. But this little proverb has to do with how you relate to bad rulers who do bad things that have bad results for you. In verses 2 to 9, wisdom in such a ruler's presence will paint a smile on your face even if you are still scowling at him in your heart. Because wisdom knows that a ruler does whatever he wants and you're going to stay on your good side if you know what's good for you in this life. Wisdom will change the hardness of your face in the presence of a foolish or selfish ruler. 
Wisdom keeps even that king's commands. So you see what he's doing. He's saying, look, sometimes you have to look more pleasant than you feel to get along in an unideal world. Now, I don't particularly like being told that. I don't hide my emotions well. I don't, I'm not good at painting on a smile. Many of us are not good at that. But Kohelet's telling us, look, you don't live in an ideal world where you get to wear your emotions on your sleeves all the time and you can be authentic and genuine and, and always express what's in your heart. You're not allowed to do that all the time. That's not even good for you. That's not even wise all the time. He's helping you to understand that you can't take your own emotional authenticity too seriously. There's sometimes you just have to grin and bear it, even though you don't like it. Because if wisdom knows anything, and that is somewhat debatable for Kohelet, does wisdom know anything? He's trying to figure that out. But if wisdom knows anything, it's that no one keeps their life when death comes calling. Not the vigilante who's protesting a bad ruler and not even the bad ruler himself. No discharge from death. So think about that. Before you express your righteous indignation against a ruler, wisdom waits for the right time to do the right thing for the right reasons in the right way. Verse 9, all this is what Kohelet discovered about the civil power of coercion. This is what it's like in this world under less than ideal civil circumstances and under civil servants so-called who sometimes do not do right by those who are under their authority. So civil obedience should be the norm for Christians under non-Christian or even unjust leaders. That's part of the wisdom of the wise. That's part of the conduct of the wise. Jesus himself said, Mark 12, Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Pay your taxes. Keep a clean conscience about that. Be a law-abiding citizen. And the emphasis of Romans 13 is not on finding loopholes for revolution and revolt. It's on subjection to governing authorities. The command is be subject, Romans 13. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Same point in Ecclesiastes 8. That should be what is normal for us as Christians. First Timothy 2. We pray for kings and those in authority simply so that we can lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Peter agrees, First Peter 2. Be subject to the Lord's, for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether emperor or governors, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And Peter goes on to clarify that even slaves should obey their masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So if that's the case with slaves and masters, what must be the case with bad rulers? 
Disobedience to civil rulers should be exceptional behavior when the state breaks God's law or coerces subjects to sin. And there are very few examples of this in Scripture, and that's for a reason. It should be rare. We can almost, almost count them on one hand. Midwives disobey Pharaoh's edict of Jewish infanticide in Exodus 2. Naboth refuses to submit to Ahab's state-sponsored theft of his vineyard in 1 Kings 21. I'm sure there's a whole range of conscience-based applications there that I'm not even going to touch. Esther plots against Haman's state-sponsored genocidal plot against the Jews in Persia, which is a text that we would use to say it's okay to resist a Hitler. Daniel and company refuses to worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden image in Daniel 3. Daniel himself resists Nebuchadnezzar's prohibition of prayer in Daniel 6. The apostles flout the Jewish prohibition of evangelism in Jesus' name in Acts 4. And in Revelation, the church refuses to worship the beast in his image. So the Bible does not teach government absolutism, that a government has absolute sway over its citizens and that Christians are never, ever, under any circumstances, allowed to disobey it. That's not what the Bible teaches. There is room as well, for disagreement on interpretations and applications based on individual conscience. But unless the government is making you commit serious outward sin against others, unless the government is making you literally worship another god, unless the government is committing egregious state-sponsored theft, like at Naboth's vineyard, then Scripture tells you it's normally wise to submit And if you resist in any of the situations the Bible actually does allow, you better be prepared to give your life for it. Because Naboth lost his. And Daniel and his friends would have lost theirs were it not for miracles. Most of the apostles were martyred. So make sure your disobedience is worth it because you won't be able to control the unintended consequences and unforeseen circumstances that come from resisting state authority. You're not going to be able to control that. That's Kohelet's warning. And a word to the wise is sufficient. Christians don't make heroes out of violent rioters. Whether it's about George Floyd or whether it's on January 6th. Rioting is never the answer, and the members of this church will not be known for participating in it or promoting it on social media. Governments should not let people run riot without consequence, setting fires to other people's private or commercial property, breaking into government buildings and acting like wild people. None of that stuff should ever be promoted, much less celebrated in a Christian church. And none of it should be tolerated by governments either. Peaceful protests are one thing, but let's not fool ourselves into thinking that breaking into government buildings or throwing Molotov cocktails through storefront windows count as peaceful protests. Church members who do such things, by the way, ought to be disciplined by their own congregations. You should not be able to keep your membership in a local church in good standing 
if you behave like that in public without repentance, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, public violence, destruction of private or commercial property, vandalism, breaking and entering into public buildings is cause for immediate church discipline. It disparages the name of Christ. God's people should not be known for such things. Martin Luther himself abhorred it when the radical reformers threw rocks through stained glass windows and vandalized Roman Catholic art and property. That's not what he had in mind for the Reformation. And as the one greater than Solomon, Jesus himself paid the tax that other Jews resented. He recognized that Pilate had authority over him precisely because God is the one who gave it to him. And from a worldly perspective, Jesus gave his life not because he resisted state authority, but because he submitted to it. But of course, Jesus did not simply lose his life. He gave it. He rendered it up voluntarily because of all the people who ever walked the earth, Jesus alone had the authority, the right, the power to retain his spirit at death. He alone had the power over the day of death. And what did he do with that power? Listen to Charles Bridges. Only one, only one of the children of Adam has ever claimed this dominion over his life that the preacher is saying none of us have in Ecclesiastes 8. And he, while he thus asserted his prerogative, was pleased for our sake to waive it. He had the power of death. He had the power to retain his spirit. And he waived that right. And he said, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. You and I have no power over the day of our death. We have no right to retain our spirit. That right belonged to Jesus alone. And he waived his right over his own spirit to yield it voluntarily in death so that his death might count as the substitute sacrifice under the wrath of God for all those who would ever repent of their sins and believe in him. And because he did that, Jesus has discharged us from the war of death eternal. Kohelet is saying, hey, there's no discharge from, from war. No discharge from the war of death. Everybody has to die it on their own. But praise God, he sent Jesus to discharge every debt and punishment we owed the holy God for our sins against his righteous government over our souls. And if we turn from our rebellion against him, to trust in Jesus' obedience and death as our own, we can be reconciled to this God by faith in Christ alone, apart from any works we could ever do. And our death will not be experienced as penalty, but as entrance into the kingdom of God. Second, the conflict of the wise. The conflict of the wise in verses 10 to 13. And that conflict is seeing injustice under God's rule. The wicked who are buried in verse 10 could be the wicked leaders who did as they pleased in verse 3, or they could be the subjects who rebelled against them in an evil cause. Not sure. Could be either one of them. Either way, 
These were wicked people who somehow maintained a reputation for righteousness. And don't you hate that? Wicked people who everybody else thinks is righteous. Gets under your skin, doesn't it? These are the kind of people that make other people want to quit going to church. So the point here, though, is not that the wicked get what they deserve, death. It's that the wicked get what they don't deserve, an honorable burial. Burial is a good thing in the Old Testament. It means that you finish well, or at least that other people thought you finished well. And they want to honor you at your death, at your burial. Jezebel doesn't get buried. She gets eaten by dogs who lick up her blood from the ground. The point here is that the wicked often get an honorable burial at the end of their lives. The wicked. When that's the last thing we expect or want for them, it's the last thing they deserve. The funeral of the wicked is actually conducted as if it were a celebration of his life when it should be conducted as a warning against emulating his wickedness. That's what he's saying. So the burial of the wicked shouldn't have even happened. And depending on how you interpret the Hebrew, they may not just have lived their lives going in and out of the synagogue each week. They may have actually had a funeral procession that began at the temple or at the synagogue, with the sanction of the religious leaders themselves. Their funeral procession started at church. Their funeral may have made it onto the church calendar. So you're going on the website to the members-only page, and you're looking at the church calendar, and you're like, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. We're doing his funeral? you got to be kidding me. Honorable discharge at death, recognized by religious authorities, from a life of going in and out of the holy place without censure, maybe with positive approval, at least without hindrance. All the pastors, all the elders love this guy. And praised in the city, maybe on the city council, Precisely because they either used authority unjustly or rebelled against it without just cause. These are disobedient people who nevertheless enjoy a reputation for being righteous. Literally, all the way to the grave, precisely because of their rebellion and their wickedness. This also... Kohelet says, is vanity. Vanity. What's that word mean in this context? It doesn't just mean put on makeup. It doesn't just mean superficial. It doesn't just mean temporal. It's absurd. This is senseless. This is disillusioning. 
This is not the way that it's supposed to be. And that's life in a fallen world. Yep, that happens. Now, when I got to verse 11, I thought, surely this is going to be about criminal sentencing. I thought, oh, man, here I get to preach against lenient DAs in liberal cities who refuse to prosecute crimes and degrade felonies to misdemeanors who promote cashless bail and let felons out on their own recognizance only to wreak more havoc and become a greater menace to society. And you could read it that way if you ripped it out of context and calligraphed it on shiplap in your kitchen. But don't do that with this verse, at least not yet. Read it in context first. Whose justice is Kohelet questioning here? It's not Alvin Bragg in Manhattan. It's God in heaven. He's talking about how and when wicked people die. Who's in control of that? God is in control of that. So he's complaining about how life works. Again, who's in control of of how life works? God is. God is the one who subjected this world to futility, Romans 8.20. So when he says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, he's not criticizing bad DAs. He's observing that God himself does not always swiftly execute justice on sinners in ways that warn them to change or please our sense of our need for immediate justice. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, God lets wicked people live long, happy, prosperous lives of sinning without punishment. They get away with it. God doesn't always strike people with lightning on their way out from robbing the bank. Sometimes really bad people get away with really bad stuff for a really long time. There are multiple world leaders getting away with really bad things right now. Now here is the conflict in verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, that's observation, that's Kohelet, gatherer of observations. This is what I see. A sinner does evil a hundred times, prolongs his life. Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. That's faith. And that one verse, that one contrast, you have really, I think, the whole book in a nutshell. It's the competing perspectives of Kohelet, though the wicked guy gets away with it a hundred times. I know it's not going to be well with the wicked, and it will be well with the righteous, because the righteous fear God and the wicked do not. Observation, overcome, by faith in God's Word. This is, this is it. This is how he's arguing within himself. I see this in the world, 
But even though I see that, what I read in the Bible is something else. And I'm trusting the Bible. Even though what I see is a problem. I see this evil. But even though bad people get away with bad stuff and ride off into the sunset, I know that the fear of God is best. This is a worldview affirmation. It will be well with those who fear God. It will not be well with those who do not fear God. That is what I know, even when it's not what I see. And therefore, that is how I will live. So here, Kohelet is holding fast to the kernel of wisdom. He's not arguing with Proverbs. He's arguing with himself, with what he sees. If I only know one thing in this absurd, disillusioning, upside-down world is that fearing the Lord is the way to wisdom and blessing and life in the end. This right here is one of the most faith-filled things Kohelet says in the whole book. That's how faith talks. Even though I see this, I know I read this other thing in Scripture, and that's what's going to guide me. He's admitting that God governs his fallen world in a way that confronts us with the limits of our own reason. And since that is true, fear of the Lord is the way, despite all appearances to the contrary, and there are many appearances to the contrary. To say this, you have to believe something about God's character and ways, despite what you see in a world gone amok. God is righteous. He is judge. He is just. He is holy. He is sovereign. He will right every wrong. He will bring sinners and sin to account, fearing this God, holding Him in highest regard, respecting His word, trusting His promises, taking His threats seriously. That is the way to live, even when you see wicked people walking in and out of church as if they own the joint and as if they have the pastor wrapped around their finger. Of course, none of this is to say that verse 11 has no application at all to either perpetrators or prosecutors. It does have application. One Puritan pastor drew this warning from verse 11 and the idea that people give themselves to sin over time when they think they can get away with it, which is what Kohelet is complaining about here. And here's his application for people who think they're going to keep on getting away without, with sinning indefinitely. He says this, Vice is first pleasing, then it grows easy, then delightful, then frequent, then habitual, then confirmed. Then the man is impenitent, unrepentant. Then he is obstinate, stubborn in his sin. Then he resolves never to repent. He identifies with his sin. And then he is damned. He says, beware the first taste of the poison, the first lust after its sweetness, the first consent of the will, the first yielding of the heart to anything but to God. Beware of that. 
So that's how one way verse 11 applies to perpetrators, to sinners. But the truth of verse 11 in its own right does, in fact, have an implicit secondary application to lenient criminal sentencing in human society and government. Implicit secondary application. In other words, maybe you can calligraph it on shiplap and put it in your kitchen. If even God's delayed justice sets bad men in their evil ways, as Kohelet is complaining, then how much more must that be true of man's lenient justice? If the effect of God saying, you know what, I'm going to postpone his judgment until the very, very, very end, and that confirms that man in his sin, then that's, just, that's going to have the same effect if, if a human DA doesn't prosecute confirmed crimes. Same thing. Lenient sentencing does embolden criminals. That's why governments should wield the sword predictably, resolutely, and righteously against criminals, even if imperfectly. DAs should prosecute criminals caught by police officers. Yes, police officers should make sure they're arresting real perpetrators rather than settling personal vendettas or acting on mere prejudice or acting from convenience just to ring another collar and close another case. But a policy of lenience in order to achieve a contrived equality or ratio of outcome, that's not biblical justice. Public justice can only do so much. It can prosecute the guilty and vindicate the innocent, and it should. What public justice cannot do is right historical wrongs, balance ethnic books, or create equality of outcomes or even opportunities. All public justice can do is apply the law without partiality. I mean, even if you try to right historic wrongs with money, wealth has wings that nobody can clip. That wealth isn't going to last. It'll fly away. Third, the counsel of the wise. The counsel of the wise in verses 14 and 15. And this counsel is surprising. Righteous people sometimes get treated as if they were wicked. Wicked people sometimes get treated as if they were righteous. Now what? world doesn't work all the time, like Proverbs told you it would. How do you respond to this absurd, senseless, upside-down, not-the-way-it's-supposed-to-be injustice? We'll call it begins, verse 15, And I commend, and with the way the book is going, with the way you sometimes feel when you read Ecclesiastes, you expect the next word to be something like, well, I commend resignation. Stoicism, cynicism, fortitude, endurance, patience, quietism, or maybe we wish it said righteous indignation. Whatever we were expecting, we sure didn't see joy coming. I come, you come in joy? In the kind of world you're describing? 
I mean, that, that might make you want to shut your Bible and quit your quiet time. I need joy. You've got to be kidding me. And when he says joy, what do you think he means, Christian? What do you think he means? Well, he doesn't mean what your super spiritual self assumes he means. He doesn't mean serenity and gratitude that transcends all circumstances and walks on clouds in a perpetual quiet time of inside and anti-material delights. That's not at all how he explains it as he writes the rest of verse 15. He means go out to dinner with your husband or your wife or your friends, laugh together about whatever you saw or heard today, and leave a whale of a tip whether the waiter deserved it or not. That's what he means. Act like this life in this world with your spouse and your friends and the money God has given you is a gift from God. Because it is. Yes, it is a trust. God is your master. Not just your benefactor. But a dour, slow-to-enjoy-life attitude says to others that your master is actually a monster. That's not what you want to communicate by the way you live. Don't you want to convince people that God is a good master? Now again, I'm sure you've heard that similar logic before. That doesn't mean you go all in for the prosperity gospel. God's a good master, so I bought a Ferrari to prove it. No. But it does mean that 1 Timothy 4, 2-4 is about false teachers, not true ones. It's about people who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and by prayer. Super spiritual Christian, you've got to drop the act, man. Drop the act. Mature Christians don't forbid other Christians such pleasures in this life. Mature Christians know that God has freed us from stupid rules about what we can and cannot enjoy in this world if we are not violating a clear command of God. And those who do not know that fact are the ones who forbid other people from enjoying God's good gifts in this world. God doesn't like it, though, when people forbid His children from enjoying His goodness to them. Don't do that to other people. Don't do that to God's children. If I tell my kid, it's okay for you to have a little more dessert. I don't want anybody else telling them it's not okay. Because I'm his dad. And I'm going to give him good stuff. Even if you don't want me to. (laughs) It's not your business. Right? God feels like that about his children and the good gifts he gives them in this life. Even if he doesn't give those good gifts to you, he gave it to them. Life is absurd. It's unfair. It's confusing. That's what Ecclesiastes is confronting you with. So what? That's way above your pay grade, man. And mine. And God set it up that way on purpose. God governs His fallen world in a way that confronts us intentionally. 
with the limits of our reason. But God is still God. He is still sovereign. So leave the management of his world and his gifts to him. And host a dinner party for some people you love without trying to figure it all out. Don't let life's absurd injustices, real as they are, sour you on life as a good gift from God. Is life bent? Yes, it is. Is life unfair? Yes. So get out of your head. This is our shared lot in life. And it's from a good, righteous God who has not told me and you everything that he's thinking and planning and all the reasons that he's doing it. So I'm going to have to trust him. And so are you. I can do something about some things. But I cannot do anything about many things. And I got to come to grips with that. Ecclesiastes is where every form of political, social, and economic idealism goes to die. Socialism dies in Ecclesiastes. Communism dies in Ecclesiastes. Marxism dies in Ecclesiastes. Statist power is not going to achieve the ideal state for humanity. The Bible's answer to inequality and injustice is not state-enforced idealism or equality of outcome. It is to recognize that this inequality, absurd as it looks, even this injustice is actually put there by God himself as a judgment for our human sin. And since no one can make straight what God has made crooked, no matter how much money they throw at it, the Bible commends joy to you in the middle of life's insoluble absurdities. Smile. God's got it. I know it's disillusioning. You look out there and you're like, what in the world? What on God's green earth is going on out there? And sometimes you ask that about what in the world is going on in your own house. And no matter how much you ask that question, you're like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I can't fix it. I can't fix it. Yeah, you're right. Pray, love, read your Bible. Take good counsel and accept your lot in life with a smile to God. My wife bought me a hat recently. She was at a garage sale. I love turtles. And she saw a turtle hat. I was like, I love that hat. She showed me a picture of it. I was like, yeah, I get it. I said to her, it looks like he's looking up. He was looking up. I said, I said I, it looks like he's looking up to God and just kind of thanking God for his life. Like, hey, thanks for my shell, God. You know, kind of had a smile on his face. You know, looking out of his shell. I mean, it's kind of like that. Like, yeah, is, is being a turtle the greatest thing in the world? I don't think so. I mean, you're really slow. You're kind of vulnerable. If you, if you fall upside down, you're kind of up the creek. But <laughs> the turtle's enjoying it. Right? Being a turtle. To the glory of God. 
And that's how you got to be in the middle of, hey, God, I, I got a real problem here. I got a real hurt. I got a real confusion. I got a real complexity. I can't figure it out. I don't know what to do. I don't know what you expect me to do about it. Yeah, that's going to happen. And you got to learn to enjoy life anyway. It's not that we don't work and pray for justice. We do. It's not that we turn a blind eye when the innocent are imprisoned or when the wicked are treated like heroes. We should care about those things, but we should also realize that no matter how much we care, do, give, spend, only Jesus can return to make all things new and right. I'm not the one to take the absurdity out of life. I can't do that for myself. I can't do that for you. No counselor can do that. And neither can you. Your mayor isn't the one to do that for you, or your governor, or your president. Now, working towards a legal system that dispenses justice without prejudice or favoritism, that's good. It's necessary. But that's not the same thing as working towards an ideal of equality of outcome, or working towards some subjective, superficial rectifying of historical wrongs by throwing money at people. Money's great. Until it disappears. And according to the Bible, it always disappears. So keep working, keep toiling, keep doing your job, keep on fulfilling all your obligations and all the different callings in your life. Be a good boss, be a good employee, be a present and patient dad. Be a kind and nurturing mom. Be faithful as a member of your local church. Be a good neighbor. If you're in public office, then rule well. Craft policies that create prosperity and safety for the public. Pursue criminal sentencing that actually discourages and prevents criminals from committing crimes in the first place because they know they're going to pay for it in the end. Enjoy all the pleasures and rewards of faithfulness in all of your rules. But literally, for God's sake, for God's glory, leave cosmic, historic, ideal justice to God. Leave God to send Jesus to utter, usher in the ideal kingdom from heaven. Leave it to God to send Jesus to right every wrong, to administer universal, ideal, perfect justice. And until then, don't let the not yet steal your joy in the already. Because the good news is that Jesus is the righteous person to whom it happened according to the deeds of the wicked. It happened to Jesus like it should have happened to you. He never sinned, and yet he was crucified between two criminals because he knew that we were the wicked ones who deserved that fate, and he took it for us. We were the ones waltzing in and out of church while we couldn't stop sinning, misusing our power over others. God saw God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to be the righteous one treated like the wicked so that in Him we would be the wicked ones credited with His righteousness by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But that kind of faith quits trying to figure everything out on its own. You became a Christian because you couldn't figure out your way to righteous reconciliation with God. And now you've got to dance with the one who brung you. You've got to keep living in this unrighteous world by faith in the same Christ who was crucified for you. And trust 
ultimate justice to him. And trust that the government is on Christ's shoulders, not yours, not mine. Which leads us to our fourth and final feature of the wise. The conundrum. The conundrum of the wise in verses 16 and 17. And the conundrum, this is it. Ready? Ignorance, regardless of effort. (laughs) No matter how much you try, you're not going to know. You're not going to figure it out. Look there. Man cannot find out. He will not find it out. He cannot find it out. How much more clear can he be? If Kohelet could not figure out life all the way to the bottom, then no offense, you're not going to figure it out either. And neither will I. No matter how hard you think, no matter how much you read, no matter how hard you work. See, he's tried it. He tried all that. And this is his conclusion. You will not understand all God's ways with man on the earth. Kohelet applied his heart to know and to see. Say that to our kids sometimes, right? Apply yourself. Apply yourself. Well, Kohelet did apply himself. He did. He tried. He saw all God's providence over life, and here's what he saw. What he saw is that man cannot find out the work that God has done under the sun. He saw that God governs his fallen world in a way that confronts us intentionally with the limits of our own reason. Now he started chapter 8 with a question. Who is like the wise? Who resembles the wise? Who looks like a wise person? And what does, the wisdom, what does their wisdom look like? And his answer in chapter 8 has basically been, the wise know they should obey with a smile even when the law grates on them. They hold to the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom against all appearances to the contrary. They enjoy life anyway. And they don't spend their whole life in their head trying to figure it all out. Why'd this go wrong when I felt like I did everything right? I don't know. But I'm not going to quit loving God. I'm not going to quit enjoying life. I'm not going to quit being grateful to God because I don't know. The wise admit that they can't figure it all out because they know that God governs his fallen world in a way that intentionally confronts us with the limits of our reason. They remember Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. See, God didn't give us Ecclesiastes so that we can figure it all out. That's not the purpose of Ecclesiastes. God gave us Ecclesiastes to help us figure out that we cannot figure it all out. And yet, we can enjoy life anyway. Now, 
Are you okay with that? Are you okay not being able to figure everything out and enjoying life anyway? That's the question Ecclesiastes is asking you. Can you learn to enjoy this life in obedience to Christ without figuring out all the reasons for all the senselessness in your own life or in the news? Without trying to fix everybody else's problems? Are you willing to honor your master by enjoying the good life he gave you in this world rather than acting like he would frown on you if you enjoyed this life amidst the absurdities? I can't smile. I can't laugh. I can't go out to dinner. Look at the world! How could I possibly? And Kohelet said, well, what else are you going to do, man? You're going to go running around trying to fix everything? Now, again, this is not a permission slip to sin. But here's the hard truth of verses 16 to 18. God does not owe you an explanation for all his ways, even with you. And he doesn't owe you an explanation before you agree to enjoy the life he gave you. You can't be like, I'm not enjoying this until you tell me why this went wrong in my life. I'm not enjoying it. Well, (laughs) you can't talk to God like that. You've got to be able to move forward in joyful obedience without that explanation and without a spirit of entitlement to it. What God did reveal to you, what he does want you to understand, is Christ in all the Bible. In such a world as this, Christ is your wisdom. Christ is your wisdom. He is the righteous one who died as the wicked, for the wicked, so that we could be counted righteous in him. There's your righteousness. There's your wisdom. Maybe that will make you grateful for this life that he gave you, even though you don't have all the answers. Because you certainly weren't entitled to that sacrifice, that gift. I mean, if you know that, if you trust that, then be at peace with your God, with yourself, with each other, with your job, with your family, with your food, with life in this world, with your children. Don't stop growing in Christ. Don't become complacent. Keep on pursuing Christ as your wisdom. He is a never-ending fountain of wisdom and life. And forget about all the impossible questions this sermon left you with. (laughs) And go have a nice lunch with somebody you love. Go throw a frisbee with your kid or with your friend. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that God has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and your toil in which you toil under the sun. You're human. Act like it. Now that's not all the Bible says. 
But that's in the Bible. That's Ecclesiastes 9. We're getting there. So husband, don't spoil your wife's joy in this life by being a curmudgeon. I say this out of experience. <laughs> Be generous with her. Be kind to her. Accommodate her wishes as you are able. And wife, don't spoil your husband's joy in this life. Be the kind of wife that your husband wants to enjoy this life with. Yes, God governs his fallen world in a way that intentionally confronts us all with the limits of our own reason. Now, can you enjoy the life God gave you anyway? Is that too much to ask? Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, we sense ourselves to be so many Marthas always scurrying around trying to figure everything out and make everything right. And we complain against you that nobody's helping us. Nobody's helping us fix it and figure it out. And you say to us, come here, come to my feet. Come, let me just talk to you. Let me teach you. And so we pray, would we have attitudes, give us attitudes that are quick to just sit at your feet and learn from you, Christ. Help us to enjoy as a good gift this life that you have given us, even though you have bent it because of our sin. Give us the wisdom of the wise. Give us the wisdom that is from above. Give us the wisdom that's grateful for what you have revealed and not resentful about what you have not revealed. Help us to recognize that the secret things belong to you and there are many secret things but that the things that you have revealed in your scriptures are for us and our children to know and love and observe and obey forever. Help us to be like this preacher in Ecclesiastes who is able to look at life straight in the face, straight in the eye, without any prevaricating or lying to ourselves about the way the world really is. And yet help us be the kind of Christians who are grateful to you that you have revealed Christ as the one who will overcome it all and that you have enabled us by his grace to move forward in joy and to entrust all the secret things to you. Make us not grievous people. Make us grateful people. Because we trust you. For Jesus' sake, amen.